Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 996. We bring you three AL East-flavored interviews this week as we wade into the divisional round of the playoffs. First up, David Lorelo welcomes Eve Rosenbaum, assistant general manager for the Baltimore Orioles. Eve tells us what she used to do as the director of baseball development for the team and how her new role requires her to focus much more on the majors. We also hear about the team's player development machine, the details of how waiver wires and DFAs work, the club's excitement during the impressive 2022 campaign, what's causing pitchers to get better after being acquired by Baltimore, and some of the reasons why the club made so many moves this year. So it's definitely a ton of transactions. I think the roster was turned over a lot from who it was at the beginning of the year toward the end of the year. And a lot of that, you know, is because we had guys like Gunner and Adley come up and really cement their place in our lineup. And then, you know, pitching-wise, you know, at the beginning of the year, we had, you know, Travis Lakins and Alex Wells, who were good for us last year in 2021. And this year in 2022, we just had some guys really step up. You know, Brian Baker, Felix Bautista, C.N.L. Perez. We had some guys who we can, you know, pencil in. Okay, these are our seventh, eighth, and ninth inning relievers. I mean, you know, Jorge Lopez at the beginning of the year. And so when you have those pitchers who have leveled up and our manager wants to pencil them in, you know, when we're winning the game every single day, then we have relievers who last year were effective for us, but they aren't as effective this year. And that's how you end up optioning them and then eventually moving on from them. Editor's note, a few minutes into this segment, there are some sirens that can be heard in the background. I did my best to minimize them, but don't be alarmed, and they don't last long. After hearing from Eve, Jay Jaffe welcomes David Cohn and his return to Fangraphs Audio. David Cohn spoke to David Lorla on the pod back in August on episode 988, and he was at Yankees Guardians ALDS Game 1 along with Jay on Tuesday night to see Garrett Cole thrive in his playoff debut at Yankee Stadium. Jay and David discuss Cole's postseason legacy so far, as well as how he has changed his pitch usage as he's evolved. We also get insight on things like pitch counts and how they've changed over the years, the weight on your shoulders of losing an important game, Joe Musgrove's suspicious ears, and the combination of pressure and reward that comes along with being the ace of the New York Yankees. You know, there's this this narrative that the Yankee fans are so tough, they're ready to boo you, it's a hard place to play. It's actually quite the opposite. They pull for you. They want to see, they want hope. They want to see you do well. They were really pulling, trying to lift Garrett Cole up last night before his start, warming up in the bullpen. They were clearly in, in his corner and really showing him some love, you know, really that pull in their direction. And, you know, to me, that's rewarding. You know, you can deal with the failures. You know, if you have a bad game, so what? They're going to write bad things about you. You're going to get booed. But the reason you came to the Yankees was to get more opportunities because the Yankees have tremendous resources. More than likely, you're going to get more opportunities to pitch in postseason. And that's really what it's about is, you know, how many chances you get because the law of averages or, you know, whatever you want to call it, you're going to have a bad game here and there. But the more opportunities you get, the more chances you're going to have to shine. So that's the beauty of the Yankees. Finally, David Laurel returns in the third act to welcome Julian McWilliams, reporter for the Boston Globe. We begin by hearing about Julian's baseball reference page, which includes a stop playing for the Las Vegas train robbers of the Pecos League, which turned out to be Las Vegas, New Mexico. Julian and David also discuss the disappointed New York Mets and how Gary Cohen's comments on Joe Musgrove's ear saga were refreshingly honest. Julian also shares his thoughts on Xander Bogart's importance to the Red Sox, the comparison between Rafael Devers and Matt Olson, making a comparison between Matt Olson and Tristan Casas, Jordan Alvarez being undeniably amazing, and the difference in success and consistency between the Yankees and the Red Sox. It's impressive, for one, that, that the Yankees have 
you know, haven't had a losing season, I believe, since 1992 or before 1992. I think that's sort of impressive. I read that in the Shaughnessy column and I was like, had to double text that wait, is that really true? So for that, I think it's, it's impressive. However, we always took the line of like, you know, with the Red Sox, we talk about the five last place finishes in 11 seasons, but you know, they have, you know, four titles underneath their belt. So it's like, what's the, the best way for somebody to go about winning? And I'm not sure if I have an answer for that because, sure, you want consistency. And I think that's probably the consistency that the Red Sox are trying to get to. But for the Yankees, for them not to have a World Series title since 2009, I mean, I think for that market, at least me, myself, who grew up a Yankee fan, you know, that would be something that was, uh, you know, sort of unheard of. But before we get to these wonderful segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the best place for you to get some sweet, sweet Fangraphs merch, you can pick up an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. Being a Fangraphs member is not only the best way to browse the website, but to also support the website, helping us to do everything it is that we do, from the podcast to the leaderboards to the writing and analysis to just plain keeping the servers running. We couldn't do it without your help. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Eve Rosenbaum, Assistant General Manager for the Baltimore Orioles. Eve, thanks for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's start, Eve, with your current and previous roles with the organization. What are your primary responsibilities as an assistant GM, and what were they as the Director of Baseball Development? Yeah, what I'm spending a lot of my time on now is really focusing on the major league team and on the day-to-day operations of the major league team. So, and obviously we are in the offseason now because unfortunately we didn't make the playoffs. But during the season, it's a lot of meeting with the coaches and meeting with Hyde, our manager, you know, before and after the game and just saying, hey, you know, how did things go? Any moves we need to make for tonight, for tomorrow's game, any injury any injury updates, you know, who should we be optioning? How's our bullpen doing? We have enough arms for tomorrow. You know, have, you know, let's talk about the lineup for tomorrow. We're facing lefty, we're facing righty, any moves we should make for that. So that obviously during the season, we all know the season is jam-packed and there's constant trips action. So that's a lot of my focus during the season. And then uh, you know, in the off season, it's more similar to what I've been doing in previous off seasons, which is, you know, talking about the moves we need to make, whether it's trades or signing for agents, picking up options, tendering guys, going to arbitration, focusing on all of that. So how it's different from what I've done previously is when I first came onto the Orioles, I was the director of baseball development. And I was still doing a lot of work related to pro transactions. But obviously with COVID in particular, it was really hard to actually be in the office and talk to the players and talk to the coaches when you're working from home or only in the office a couple of days a week. So I, I wasn't focused on that. Instead, what I was doing as the director of baseball development was really f- be focused on building up our digital infrastructure. So I spent a lot of time working with our R&D department, you know, who works under SIG. And it was a fairly new department you know, when I first got here in 2019. So I was spending a lot of time with them and building out our database and making sure that our database had tools that are player development department can use, or coaches can use, or scouting departments can use. Really everyone in the front office that they had a place where they could go and use tools and enter their scouting reports and read their game reports and look at our new projection models. 
So I was building that out. And then I spent a ton of time. I, I do spend a lot of time still working with our farm director, Matt Blood, and our scouting directors, Kobe Perez and Brad Selick, and just making sure that they have everything that they need and helping them you know, to evaluate players. So I still do a ton of that. But as we've gotten that database built up and as we've sort of flushed out our scouting methodologies and our player development methodologies, we've really come a long way in those areas of the past three years, which I assume we're going to talk about some today. I've been able to sort of leave some of that work behind and transition of focus on the major league team, which is good timing because we're also focusing more on the major league team now as we're you know, good and making a wild card push. On the subject of not making the wild card, you know, the team is, of course, not in the postseason. But that said, mm-hmm. just how satisfied are you, Mike Sig, the entire front office on the 2022 Orioles season? Yeah, honestly, I think we're thrilled. It was so much fun to watch for us to see the players excelling, see players exceeding expectations, to see the fans back in the ballpark, to see everyone walking around downtown Baltimore wearing their Orioles hats. Yeah, that was awesome. You know, now that said, we like to win. So we want to make the wild card or win the division next year. Uh, you know, absolutely, that's going to be the goal. And our players want to win, our coaches want to win. So we're not you know, resting on our laurels or anything like that. We know the pressure is going to be on for us to compete and outperform what we did this year to outperform that next year. Would it be accurate, Eve, to say that the organization has transformed itself into a player development machine? Yeah, I think we've transformed ourselves in a ton of ways. You know, that's what Mike and Sig were hired to do when they came in in 2018. And when they brought me along in 2019, I was absolutely on board, which is transforming every facet of the organization. So a huge focus over the past few years has been on player development. And that blood just absolutely overhauled the player development department, hiring new young coaches, a lot of coaches from junior colleges, a lot of coaches who didn't have previous pro coaching experience, but they were hungry. They were willing to try out new methodologies, you know, throwing batting practice in ways that we haven't thrown batting practice before, doing drills that we haven't done before in the infield and the outfield, and just really bonding with the players and getting to know each player and getting to learn how each player works. What are their cues? How do they bounce back from adversity? How can we challenge this guy? How can we work with our medical staff and our and our strength and conditioning staff and involve them in the player development decisions? So it's been completely overhauled, a huge new staff. Um, everyone's firing on all cylinders. You know, we all work together. It's very collaborative. And you know, fortunately, we have two of our affiliates here, our high A affiliate and our double A affiliate within driving distance from Baltimore. So we're able to, I'm able to go out and watch a lot of their games. You know, Matt Blood is able to be in the office here, plugged in with me and Elias and Sig, and then he's able to go and drive around and see the affiliates. So, you know, absolutely. I think we're a player development powerhouse now. In terms of, uh, you know, graduated prospects of the big leagues, the biggest impacts, you know, recently have been position players, you know, Rutschman, Henderson, now, Stowers came up. Mount Castle, I guess, was just two years ago. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about the organization's hitting program? Yeah, ton of credit goes to our hitting coaches and our uh, hitting coordinators. Ryan Fuller was new the same year that I was hired in 2019, and now he's up with Matt Brooks-Trolte in the big leagues. And we've got Anthony Villa, Cody Ashy, really uh, helping out in the minor leagues. And then all of the coaches at, at each Affiliate, you know, they've come in 
I love talking to those guys. They love hitting. They want to challenge hitters. They focus on swing mechanics, but it's not just the mechanics of the swing. It's how is the swing actually working in the game? How do you adjust for to different types of pitches? You know, even in the minor leagues, doing a bit of advanced reports, trying to study the pitcher ahead of time so we know how they're going to challenge us as hitters. Focusing on swinging at strikes, and then when you do swing at strikes, swing hard so you can impact the ball and elevate the ball and you know drive the ball and hit homers, doubles, you know, hitting hard singles. So that I think is a lot of what we've been you know focused on, which is you know let's get good pitches. When we get the pitches, let's swing hard, and we have these coaches who are just super energetic and willing to try new things. They want to look at the data. They want to work with our research and development team and develop new metrics and have reports that are delivered straight to the players' phones that highlight some of the key things we've been working on with them. So the player, the player immediately after the game can see, you know, okay, did I swing at good pitches? How did I do versus curveballs today? And so the hitter then can track himself and his progress each game on how he's progressing toward his player development goals our hitting coaches have set with the players, you know, at the beginning of the season, they check in halfway through the season, and then before they go home, we check in with them. So it's been this really, really fun group of coaches who have really gotten to know our players well. These coaches are just young, high-energy, progressive, forward-thinking. And again, a huge shout-out just to Matt and all the coaches who he's hired. And with progressive in mind, Eve, have there been any, well, I guess you could call them directional shifts? in terms of which data and training practices the team values most? I think that's been a big thing that we've been learning about. And one thing that you know, I really stressed when I was the director of baseball development and that everyone's on board with here is that you know, we're constantly learning and then we're constantly adjusting our are hitting philosophies based on what we've learned with players. So you know, a huge thing that we go back and forth on is you know, how we balance power versus contact. And the whole league has been working on this. It's absolutely no secret. I was just talking to Kobe Perez, our international scouting director. He and I were just talking about it because, you know, it also impacts the type of players who we sign internationally and in the draft. And, I, you know, I think at first, you know, we were really focused on, hey, let's develop a ton of power. And then we were saying, okay, you know what? Maybe with some players we should focus more on contact. But, you know what? Contact is really hard to... Develop. So maybe let's roll that back and let's focus on how can we, you know, draft players with good swings who are already going to make a lot of contact, and then we can focus more on developing the power aspect. So it's a constant back and forth with, hey, you know, here's what our analytics team is saying. This is what contributes to producing runs in the big leagues. And if you produce runs at the big leagues, then you win games. So obviously that's no secret. Okay, and then our hitting coaches say, okay, well, if these are the metrics that we think, and this is the data that contributes to runs, let's develop our players so they have those skills. Okay, and if we're to develop players that have those skills, let's draft players who have those skills already. So, you know, it, it's a lot of swinging at strikes, you know, we, it's no secret that we like to focus on drawing walks and then driving the ball, but being able to drive the ball against all different types of pitching. So, you know, I don't know if there's certain directional shifts that we've made, but really it's just a constant back and forth with what the data is telling us, what our analysts are telling us, with what, and combining that with what the coaches see on the field and how the coaches are able to improve players in certain areas, but maybe other areas are harder to improve. 
And I assume that a lot of those philosophies translate over to the big leagues because uh, you're looking at the roster, you see guys like Anthony Santander and Cedric Mullins. They've really turned into impact hitters in the big leagues where for a few years they really weren't. Yeah, those are two guys who have been, you know, major league player development successes. So a lot of times when we talk about player development, we're talking about the farm system, we're talking about the minor leagues. But you're absolutely right. Players in the majors can make changes and improve as well. And I think having Ryan Fuller, who worked in the minors the past couple of years, come up and now be one of our major league hitting coaches, and he's absolutely on the same page with Borg. So that's been huge because any everything that the players are learning in the minors, how they're learning to change their swing, how they're learning to face pitcher, pitchers in the minors, you know, how they're learning uh, to be challenged in batting practice, and then having that same exact philosophy in the majors is just this continuity. So they're not hearing multiple messages based on what level that, that they're at. So, you know, with Mullins, when he came into camp and said, no, hey, I, I want to try hitting left-handed only, we were like, we're totally on board with that. Let's try that out. So a lot of that, I think, credit to Mullins for being on board with wanting to try something new, and it worked. And then with Santander this year, a huge focus for him was his swing decisions and just swinging at strikes, not chasing pitchers. And then, hey, if you're getting strikes, if you're letting those balls go by, you've got this power so you can really drive the ball. And he, you know, he was a little bit hobbled last year in 2021 with injuries. He worked a lot over the offseason, came into camp and spring training at the beginning of this year, you know, really toned up and looking good. And again, Kobe and I were watching him at spring training. We were like, we think this guy's going to go off. We think he's going to have a year. He's healthier than he's been before. He's looked better, you know, physically. He's really connecting with our hitting coaches and at the advanced meetings before each game. You know, he's practicing and saying all the right things about swinging at strikes, not chasing pitches. And that all came together. So it was definitely a big player development success with getting him to swing at the right pitches. And then uh, credit to our medical staff and our strength and conditioning staff for really working with him to get him in, you know, maybe the best shape of his life. Jorge Mateo is by no means a success story from an offensive standpoint. But I think he's very notable in that you actually claimed him off of waivers in August of last year. And the defense and speed he adds is fantastic. So I guess my question is, how does one acquire a player with that much talent for nothing? <laughs> yeah, so... You know, we were picking at the top of the waiver wire, which, you know, means that unfortunately we hadn't done that well in the majors, but, you know, a silver lining for that is that we did get to pick at the top of the waiver wire. And, you know, I think what happened is Mateo just could never find a spot with the Padres where he would be an everyday player out of shortstop. And when we were watching him, we were just dreaming on him going, you know, if only this guy could be our everyday shortstop, we would actually run him out there every single day and he would get that repetition that he's never had before. And he was bouncing around, he was more of a utility player, he was playing the outfield a lot. He just didn't have a defensive home. And fortunately, we were able to give him a defensive home. And I think what he's really benefited from is going from a team where he just wasn't playing every day, he wasn't in a rhythm, he was having to learn multiple positions. So then coming over here with us, and it was, hey, you are a fantastic shortstop. We want you to go out there every single day, and we know that you have this talent to be 
absurdly good defensively. We want you to just do that. Just practice every single day. Go out there, you know, have the mindset of being the starting shortstop. And I think that was a huge change for him. So the focus on him has been his, his defense and his speed. But a lot of the power that he has in his body that allows him to be explosive, to steal bags, and to get to balls, you know, all over the place near the sixth hole, he can actually use that power offensively. So that's been a focus with our strength and conditioning staff and our hitting staff has been able to take that power and transform it into his offense. And we saw bursts of it this year. Um, there was a streak there in the summer when he was our our best hitter and our clutch hitter, that was right around the time that we went to Williamsport for the Little League World Series. So you know, he's working on that as well so that he can be more of an offensive threat for us next year. But really, you know, to your question of how do we acquire such talent for nothing, it was basically giving a player a, a home where he could play every single day. And we knew that talent was in there. We just had to get it out of him. I want to ask a few questions about uh, pitchers, Eve, but first, maybe mm -hmm. you can give us a little bit of an education on just how the waiver wire and DFAs works. Like, I believe that Jake Reed was just DFA'd a day or two ago, so I'm mm -hmm. assuming he is going into a database that all teams can see and players you know, from other teams. I assume that you have a staff that is following that closely, and then how do you go about determining hey, we want to claim this guy or we're not interested? Yeah, yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, and that's a lot of what our pro scouting staff focuses on. So, you know, of course, you can DFA a player when your 40-man roster is full. And if you're about to go to 41 players, then you have to take someone off that roster. So that's when you actually designate the player to get back down to 40. So in our case, yesterday we claimed Jake cave off of waivers. He's an outfielder playing from the Twins, and then we were going to be at 41 players, and so we had to take someone else off of our roster, and so that was you know, the other Jake, unfortunately, Jake Reed. So um, we get an email every single day with the list of players who are on waivers. So, you know, after a player gets DFA'd, oftentimes they'll then hit waivers, and so we get that list of players every single day. The whole league gets it every single day. And we meet as a group every morning when we do our check-in of, hey, what are we working on today? What's the focus for the pro scouts? What players are they scouting? Who are they writing up? Who should be our targets you know, in, in trades and free agency right now? We always look at the waiver wire and we identify players. You know, our pro scouts have said, this guy might be a fit. This guy might be a fit. And then we just talk about them. We watch video, we look and see, you know, where they might fit into our lineup from a strategic perspective. Are they upgrade over certain players? What's their contract status? You know, what's the price of this player going to be? Is he going to ARB? Is he not going into ARB? How many options does he have? It's huge if we have guys who get an option back and forth. So it's, it's just every day if you look at the waiver wire, and I think that's what a lot of people who play fantasy do as well. They look at the waiver wire. And then we just have a you know discussion from a strategic standpoint, from a scouting standpoint, and then we make the decision, okay, this is an upgrade for us, and he's better than a, another player, and then we take one player off the roster and swap him out for a slight upgrade. So it's basically just trying to upgrade the roster every single way that we can, even if the upgrade is marginal, it's still making the team better. And of course, there is so much flux in rosters these days. I haven't looked it up, but I assume the Orioles must have used 
between 50 and 60 players this year. And a lot of these players would have gone back and forth from the minors. Mm -hmm. What would you estimate the number of transactions is from opening day until the end of the season? Yeah, that's a really good question. I probably actually have to go back and, and look it up, which I could. I could go into you know the the database that MLB has, and I can look and see how many transactions we made. You know, I don't. I'm not even gonna give it a ballpark number right now because I wouldn't know. Because we do, we definitely were doing a lot. You know, every time you auction someone or call someone up, that's a transaction. Every time you DFA someone and then claim another guy in waivers, that's a transaction. Obviously, we called up a lot of players this year where we selected them to the roster. You know, Adam Bretchman. Kyle Stowers, Gunnar Henderson, you know, none of those players were on the 40-man roster to start the year, and then we selected them and added them. So yeah, it's absolutely been a ton of transactions, but I think what that speaks to is you know, having young guys who are graduating to the majors, which is you know, what a lot of focus on, is, and it's you know, very exciting to get these stud guys called up to the majors, there's that. But then there's, you know, with our, our bullpen, a lot of it is, you know, bullpen management and some guys get tired and so you option them, you know, back down if they've, you know, pitched two or three days in a row and you call someone else up who maybe matches up better with the team. So we're going to be facing a lot of teams in the AL East are very, you know, right-handed, heavy with their hitters. And so we want to have a lot of righties in the bullpen for that, but then we might go to play a team in the Central and the West who have more lefties. And so you want to call up, you know, Nick Vespi or D.L. Hall, who are some of our lefties who were in the bullpen this year. So it's a lot of the transactions were about you know, not only claiming guys who are on waivers, but then also matching up our bullpen for uh, the teams who we were going to be facing. And then we had fewer options on the position player side this year because, you know, we had guys who broke out and were, you know, turned into stars in their own way offensively this year. So it's definitely a ton of transactions. I think the roster was turned over a lot from who it was at the beginning of the year toward the end of the year. And a lot of that, you know, is because we had guys like Gunner and Adley come up and really cement their place in our lineup. And then, you know, pitching-wise, you know, at the beginning of the year, we had, you know, Travis Lakins and Alex Wells, who were good for us last year in 2021. And this year in 2022, we just had some guys really step up you know, Brian Baker, Felix Bautista, CNL Perez. We had some guys who we can, you know, pencil in, okay, these are our seventh, eighth, and ninth inning relievers. I mean, Jorge Lopez at the beginning of the year. And so when you have those pitchers who have leveled up and our manager wants to pencil them in, you know, when we're winning the game every single day, then we have relievers who last year were effective for us, but they aren't as effective this year. And that's how you end up optioning them and then eventually moving on from them. It's just as the whole team, you know, our, our player development phrase or player development motto of the past few years has been rising tide. And I think you see that at the major league level as well. As the team gets better, as our level of talent rises, then the whole, you know, as the whole team gets better and then some of the players, unfortunately, don't make the cut and then they come off the roster and you transact to continue to push that talent level higher and higher each day. Okay, we are running up against the clock, Eve, so I sure. think I will save a few of the 
you know, individual pitcher questions for maybe another conversation. But I sure. do want to mm-hmm. I do want to ask one other thing because when the club was at Fenway Park a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. two of the uh, Orioles pitchers I talked to were Spencer Watkins and Austin Voth. And what mm-hmm. really stood out to me was how they spoke of how they became much better pitchers after coming to the Orioles from their previous organizations. So can you maybe touch on just the pitching development program and how that extends to the major league level? Yes, I think we had a really good thing going with the pitchers this year. Everything from, you know, up in our R&D department with Sig and what he was seeing and all the way down to Chris Holt, who's our head pitching coach in the majors. And, you know, what we would do is you know, we would see, hey, this guy has a certain repertoire of pitches or this guy's throwing a ton of strikes, but he's just not being optimized. His, his pitch mix isn't what we would have it be. You know, he's focused on throwing pitches at the edges, but we really think that stuff is good enough. It's going to play no matter where he throws it. So let's just get him to fill up the zone as opposed to trying to, you know, pick around the edges and try to get cute. Let's just tell him to throw his stuff. So that's a lot of what we focused on. Um, You know, I don't don't think it's rocket science, but it was being able to convey the right message to the pitchers, getting them to buy in, showing them a lot of video, showing them a lot of data and showing them, hey, this is when you're the most successful. We want to help you to be successful. You know, let's work together on this. So with both and Watkins, those are both two really good examples. With both, he came over from the Nationals and he was on waivers. And we looked at this guy and we said, hey, this guy can give us Length. He doesn't just have to be a one-inning reliever. He can go multiple innings, and then lo and behold, he actually you know could start. And then we showed him you know what his stuff looked like and how he wanted to change his pitch repertoire. He was just totally on board with that, with the little tweaks that we wanted to make to how often he threw his fastball versus how often he threw his breaking ball. So you know that worked out. It was just basically taking a pitcher who already had good stuff and changing around the the repertoire and getting him to buy in and getting him to start thinking of himself as a starter as opposed to a reliever. And then with Watkins, he was a minor league free agent. You know, he never debuted uh, in the majors until he uh, debuted with us last year. And it was somewhat similar with him. We saw you know, this guy throws strikes. He doesn't walk a lot of people. He pitches in length. He's constantly pitching, you know, Four, four, five, six innings, which is super valuable in today's game that starters to go deep, especially when a pitcher option is you know, 15 days. Um, and we saw him, you know, he's got a full repertoire. He's got a fastball, he's got a huge down curveball, which is really important for getting lefties out. You know, he doesn't throw super hard. His fastball is 90, 91, but he throws a ton of strikes, he pitches in length. He keeps hitters off balance by having multiple pitches, and he's just not afraid on the mound. He's not up there thinking, oh, no, I'm only throwing 90, 91, I'm going to get beat. No, he's up there. He's challenging hitters. He's throwing strikes. He's throwing fastballs. And when you combine all of those things, you just, again, like Mateo, you give a pitcher a runway to go out there and be himself and get lots of repetitions, we were able to find success with both of those guys by putting them into the starting rotation and saying, hey, just go out there and be yourself. And it worked. No, fantastic, Eve. That's, that's great information. Again, there's so many more uh, players I'd love to ask you about. But again, we're over time. So I guess I will close here by thanking you for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we can definitely uh, talk more about our, our players in the future segment. Sounds great. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, another segment is coming up.
Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. When the Yankees signed Garrett Cole to a nine-year, $324 million deal in December 2019, both the team and the pitcher envisioned him as a postseason Game 1 starter under the bright lights at Yankee Stadium. Yet not until Tuesday night, nearly three years later, did Cole actually get to do so, in part because this season was the first time the Yankees won the ALE since his arrival, and because he pitched poorly in last year's wildcard game against the Red Sox. Facing the Guardians on Tuesday night, Cole shook off both that disappointment and an end-of-the-season slump to deliver a strong performance, allowing just one run and four hits over six and a third innings while striking out eight. No small accomplishment against a team with the lowest strikeout rate in the majors this year. Elsewhere on the opening day of the division series, both Justin Verlander and Max Fried got hit hard and chased early, countering the trend of strong starting pitching performances that we saw during the wildcard series. Yet one noticeable exception to that trend was Max Scherzer, who allowed four homers and seven runs in four and two-thirds innings for the Mets, who paid him $43.3 million this year to be their co-ace. His struggles opposite an ace-level performance from Hugh Darvish put the Mets in a hole that they failed to escape, even with Jacob deGrom following up in Game 2. All of this stirred some thoughts in me about the way that the role of starting pitching has evolved in the postseason over the years, from the expectations that an ace could go the distance and carry a team on his back to a championship like an Oral Hersheiser in 1988 or a Madison Bumgarner in 2014, to more carefully scripted exits and sometimes shocking early departures. And I can't think of a better person to talk about this with than David Cohn, a former Cy Young winner and five-time World Series winner who started series openers, elimination games, and clinchers, and has experienced the whole range of outcomes along the way. Cohn is now one of the game's top on-air analysts for both the Yankees' Yes Network and ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, and he's no stranger to this podcast, having spoken to David Lorela in August. Cohn covered the Mets-Padres wildcard series in the booth and is doing pre- and post-game work for Yes for the duration of their stay in the playoffs. Welcome to the show, David. Uh, my pleasure, Jay. Good to have, good to be on with you. Always uh, looking forward to talking to you about anywhere you want to go. Oh, thanks. It's a genuine thrill to have you on this uh, after following your career all the way back to your, your big breakout with the Mets in 1988 when I was a college freshman rooting for the Dodgers against you. <laughs> and then particularly through your run with the Yankees, uh, a time period that, that really reinvigorated my own love of the game. So yeah, this is this is really neat. I would love to talk about 1988 again. Just that's just a lovely topic for <laughs> I'm me. Not gonna, I'm not going to pick at that scam too much here. Um, first off, let, let's talk about Tuesday night's game. It, it felt like with this being Garrett Cole's first postseason start as a Yankee in the Bronx, that there was a lot riding on it, particularly after his struggles in last year's wild card game and and down the stretch this year. Did it seem like that to you? Yeah, ironically, it did. You know, and you're talking about a guy who's has a pretty significant postseason background. I mean, last night was his 15th career game started in postseason. And now with that factored in, he's got a 2.83 ERA in postseason. So he's had a pretty good track record, right. but it just doesn't seem that way, right? And in the pinstripes, it was his first start at home as a member of the Yankees. So yeah, coming off of last year in Boston, where he was probably compromised with a bad hamstring, tried to pitch through through the injury, and it didn't go well at Fenway Park. So there's this notion that you need this signature moment when you play for the Yankees, you know, in postseason play. And I'm not sure if last night was it for him, but certainly the way the crowd reacted to him, it, it kind of felt like something was going on there. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's 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 a what have you done for me lately type of thing, and and with the Yankees not even getting a home game last year because they were bouncing the wild card game, it did seem to me like like there was a lot of pressure on him, and and he rose to the occasion. I mean, that was uh, I thought that was a, a a very strong start, you know, not without its its flaws. But uh, what what did you see from him uh, specifically, and and what was different about that start relative to the pitcher that you saw down the stretch? You know, he he continues to evolve. It seems like he's kind of in search mode for the right 
mix of pitches, the right pitch design, whatever you want to call it. But the thing that's changed this year in particular in the second half is that he's really starting to throw his knuckle curveball a lot more. And his, his two primary secondary pitches are his slider and his knuckle curve. And they kind of complement each other because they're just a different enough to where they can kind of protect each other. You know, uh, his slider's probably more closer to 90 miles an hour, a little quicker, a little less horizontal, a little less vertical break to it. And his knuckle curve has more vertical and a little, little less velocity. So that difference between having something in the low 80s and then the upper 80s really serves him well because he doesn't really throw his change up all that much. I think only five times last night, especially against lefties. Right. He's not going to throw it a lot against righties right on right. So that secondary mix for him really is a big deal. And the knuckle curve coming along for the ride, kind of, I think it was almost 50-50 usage-wise, maybe 26-24, yeah. you know, slider to knuckle curve, something like that, or vice versa. So that, that to me, is the real difference in uh, his, his sort of approach and his pitch usage. Yeah, I, I noticed that, and he, he remarked upon it after the game that, you know, he went, especially around the third inning or so, when after he'd logged 62 pitches through the first three innings, that he kind of changed from one breaking ball to the other. And the numbers bear that out that, uh, I, I forget which it is here, um, going over memory, whether he slipped, shifted from the slider to the curve more over the last few innings when he got on that run. But is this a new curve for him? Did he like tweak something to adjust it? I noticed in StatCast it was coming up as a, a knuckle curve. But, you know, when I look at the logs in, in, in his career, it's it's uh, they just call it the curveball. Yeah, no, I he, I think he's always kind of used the spike grip, you know, a la Mike Mussino uh-huh. and several other pitches we've seen where the index finger is kind of spiked up off the ball and it okay. uh, it allows you just to use your middle finger is to, to generate the spin on the baseball. So, you know, what that does is allow him to kind of spin it a little tighter. It's a little higher spinning breaking ball, but also take some velocity off of it and get the shape on it to kind of go down, a little more vertical movement downward tilt to it. So yeah, it was a good pitch for him. I think he had eight swings and misses on it. I think that's the pitch he probably went to a little bit more later in the game after that third inning. And I think only one ball was put in play off of that particular pitch. So yeah. to me, it kind of protects his slider. I still believe like he likes his slider a little better when he really needs it. But the knuckle curve is just enough off and just a little different in terms of its design that to me, one pitch protects the other. So if hitters start looking for that slider and then they get a little more out in front of that knuckle curve, then you've got some protection for your best secondary pitch. For for him, it's still his slider. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. In a piece at The Athletic that was published on Tuesday, Cole told Lindsey Adler that he thought that being the ace of the Yankees is, quote, the hardest job in the league. I don't think there's a harder place to be the ace. I think it's the most hunted job in the league, and I think it comes with the most weight. You're well positioned to speak to that idea given that you were once that guy and made a few game one starts yourself in the Bronx. How does Cole's perception of the role square with your experience? I would substitute a couple of adjectives there for most rewarding, you know, to me. I, you know, <laughs> when I see, you know, I, I, I keep going back to 1995. It was the first wild card round. The Yankees were the first wild card team in that era. And Don uh-huh. Mattingly had never been in the postseason. And he ran out about a half hour before the game to run wind sprints in the outfield and the crowd erupted like I've never heard before. That was a standing ovation. Oh wow. That was kind of similar to what Garrett Cole got last night when he walked out to warm up before the game. It's as if, you know, there's this this narrative that the Yankee fans are so tough, they're ready to boo you. It's a hard place to play. It's actually quite the opposite. They pull for you. They want to see, they want hope. They want to see you do well. They were really pulling, trying to lift Garrett Cole up last night before his start, warming up in the bullpen. They were clearly in, in his corner and really showing him some love you know really that pull in their direction and 
you know, to me, that's rewarding. You know, you can deal with the failures. You know, if you have a bad game, so what? They're going to write bad things about you. You're going to get booed. But the reason you came to the Yankees was to get more opportunities because the Yankees have tremendous resources. More than likely, you're going to get more opportunities to pitch in postseason. And that's really what it's about is, you know, how many chances you get because the law of averages or, you know, whatever you want to call it, you're going to have a bad game here and there. But the more opportunities you get, the more chances you're going to have to shine. So that's the beauty of the Yankees. It's to me, it's it's opportunity and it's it's also rewarding as opposed to the toughness that people tend to focus on. Yeah, I think to be fair, you know, he was saying that before he'd experienced last night, you know, and he, and he's he's still searching for that first first championship ring whereas you you know, you're now speaking from the benefit of the hindsight of having been to the top of the mountain several times and and obviously having experienced that, you know, that warmth from the fans. But uh, I do think that that's a it is a very interesting contrast and in, you know the before and after and I, he was he struggled for words at one point in the press conference last night and just you know saying it was very special and then <laughs> repeating himself and and just I, it seemed like he was a bit you know over overcome with uh, you know the emotion and satisfaction of having you know having done something that you know he you know, certainly envisioned you know and anticipated but I guess being you know being in that moment is is still something different. Yeah, it was still a first for him. You're right. That's a great point, Jay, in terms of, you know, we we look at Tim as sort of, uh, you know, he's a veteran guy at this point. He should be in his prime. He's now 31 years old. He's been around the block, but that was his first. That was the first time he pitched a home game in, in pinstripes and first time he got that kind of reception and felt that kind of energy before the game warming up coming through, getting the standing ovation, walking off the mound in the middle of an inning after having been taken out by Aaron Boone. So, yeah, yeah you're right. It was, it was the first time he's ever experienced that. So it had to be kind of uh, really impactful for him and probably in a good way. You know, and speaking from experience, I remember that first feeling. And it's energizing when you feel that, that, that energy from the crowd and that acceptance and you feel accountability to your teammate and the way his teammates reacted to him in the dugout after he walked off. Yeah, that's – that's impactful. And you're right. He did show that in his postgame press conference. Yeah. Okay. So just before Cole took the mound in the other division series openers, we saw Justin Verlander get smoked by the Mariners and Max Fried scuffle against the Phillies. And in the first round, we saw a lot of strong starting pitching, but Max Scherzer, the highest paid pitcher in the game, struggled. And since I know you've been there as well, you had a rough outing in, uh, against Cleveland in 19, the 1997 division series and the Yankees took an exit. What's it like to have that weight on you and, and not deliver? Yeah, that's, you know, the accountability that you feel to your teammates. You really feel like you let them down, you know, and the number one starter starter feels that, you know, the, the guys that are at the top of the heap, you know, the Max Scherzers, the Max Free, the, the, the guys that you mentioned, I know they all feel the same way. They feel a tremendous accountability to their team, to, to their hometown city. Uh, that is a bit of a burden, and, and you do take that very seriously. And then when you don't come through – it can be pretty devastating. It really can. Um, I pitched game five in Seattle in 95 through 147 pitches. And my last pitch was a ball four to Doug Strange right. to walk in the tying run. And one of the, one of the best playoff games you'll probably ever see. Ken Griffey uh, running around the bases to score the winning run has you know, been argued maybe one of the top games and top postseason games in history. I couldn't lift my arm after that game. I didn't get off the couch for two weeks. I was so depressed. I felt like I left, you know, I let not only my teammates down, the organization, the whole city down. It really felt like, you know, that you were a complete failure, that you you definitely uh, were charged with 
a huge responsibility and that you didn't come through and you do take that seriously. And I know a lot of those number one starters feel that way, but I've learned over the years that the more opportunities you get, the the, the more chances obviously you're going to have to reverse that course. And, and you know, that's why Garrett Cole became a Yankee so that he could get more and more opportunities to pitch in postseason. That's why, that's why people choose to pay, play for teams that have a chance to, to go to postseason because the more chances you get, the odds are with you if you're a good right. pitcher and you have good stuff that you're you're going to come out on top more often than than not. Yeah. So in covering the series for ESPN, which you know I thought I told you yesterday when when I ran into you that I thought you, you guys did a great job with it. Were there things that you saw from Scherzer and Jacob Degrom that told you that they were off their usual form? Yeah. Just I was a little suspicious in Scherzer's case, and and just talking to Ron Darling, who does a great job covering sure. the Mets, uh, that. He thought that Scherzer hurt his oblique throwing a cutter, and his cut fastball was a kind of a big pitch in his repertoire to keep lefties off balance. It's more of a flatter, horizontal breaking, higher velocity pitch that he could use inside the lefties that kind of sets up his whole repertoire, sets up his fastball, sets up his off-speed pitches, and that he wasn't able to throw that as much. And that kind of um, looked to be the case when you when you break down his numbers and how many cutters he threw in that particular game. There weren't mm-hmm. a lot of them. So maybe he did try to go to plan B, maybe a few more change-ups. When he got banged around early, he kind of changed his repertoire. That was kind of what I saw. Was, was he compromised? Was he shying away from throwing that cut fastball to lefties? And maybe he had to change his, his outlook or his his approach a little bit. And the same with Jacob deGrom. It seemed like when Trent Grisham hit the home run, Jacob deGrom stopped throwing his fastball. He started throwing a lot more sliders. He changed his complete pitch allocation after that particular home run. So I'm curious. You, you kind of have to be on the inside to know what they're thinking, what their scouting report said, what their catcher was saying, what their pitching coach was saying. So, you know, unless you're in the inside, you don't know. But certainly watching from the outside, there was there was a big difference in how they go about it and the type of pitches they throw. That can only be answered by them, but it was curious in my mind. Yeah, I'll come back to that point in a minute here. But as an aside, I have to ask you about what you thought about Joe Musgrove's ears and the way that whole thing played <laughs> yes. out. I know that the broadcast. I'm, I was writing. I was actually writing the uh, the series preview for this series, Yankees Guardians, during that game. But you know, I saw on the broadcast first. I saw the t- the tweet go by that rando tweet of the close up of Joe Musgrove's shiny ears, and I know the broadcast was was showing close ups uh, without commenting on it. So somebody up there seemed to be aware of like the allegations before Buck Showalter asked the umpires to examine him in the sixth. What did you think of that whole situation, and and how did that like play out in the booth? Yeah, you know it was. I mean, it, absolutely, it was all over social media. I, I, you know, I checked Twitter in between innings. I have several people I follow, including yourself, on Twitter that you know that I look for little tidbits here and there in between innings that can enhance the broadcast or maybe mm-hmm. mistakes you've made, or, or certainly it's something I think it's helpful. And it was all over uh, social media, you know, Joe Musgrove's ears, you know, they're so shiny. What's going on? What's he got on his ears? And I was suspicious only in the sense that that's the last place you would put spider tack. And that's what they're looking for nowadays, <laughs> right? You're not going right. to put spider tack on your ears. That's for sure. First of all, it's going to rip up your ears. It's not, not healthy from, from a, a health standpoint, but also secondly, that's the, that's too obvious. So Joe Musgrove said afterwards that he had gotten a massage before the game and maybe his ears were a little oily or, you know, maybe a little lotion residue was left over. The one thing we've seen over the years, 
and it's hard to legislate. And I'm not even sure it's illegal, but a lot of pitchers have used sunscreen, some sort of lotion right. that you can mix with rosin that makes the rosin more tacky, especially in cool weather or dry weather. And that's kind of what the weather was that night at, at, at City Field. So I didn't see him go to his ears, though. I mean, we were keyed in on it, Jay. We were looking at him. Our video people were looking at it in the, in, in the truck. It wasn't like he was going to his ears every other pitch, trying to get maybe some lotion right. off of his ears and, and reach down from the rosin bag. And so that would activate the rosin and make it a little more sticky. That's something pitchers have been doing forever. There's always been sunscreen lotion in a, in a, in a bag in the bullpen, in every bullpen since 1940, from, from what I've heard. Uh, Mel Stoudemire used to use sunscreen and mix it with the rosin on a cold day, right. and it helps you get a tacky field. It helps activate the rosin. You know, now we have two different kinds of rosin bags, the rock, the rock rosin and then the powdered rosin. There's a big difference between weather, which one activates more. Sometimes the, the powder rosin doesn't do anything in cool weather and the, the lotion or sunscreen can help activate it. So, yeah, if, if, if there's a thing that was going on, possibly, maybe that was it. But he didn't go to his ears hardly at all. So the, that's, yeah. that's the mystery in it all. So and even if he was, it wasn't like he was using spider tack or the, the substances they're they're looking for nowadays that really are enhancing spin spin rates you know sunscreen right. and rosin are pretty perfectly normal i mean if somebody wants to put sunscreen on their arms it's it's pretty hard to to legislate that and say hey you're cheating i mean it's not like gaylord perry with vaseline and throwing spitballs joe right. musgrove wasn't throwing spitballs he was throwing his normal repertoire his velocity was up Everything, even a spin, even a spin rates being up, we're all into range with higher velocity and a guy who had tremendous adrenaline rush in a postseason game in a big game. Yeah, there's a whole conversation about this stuff that I would love to have at another time, but I don't want to. Right. Uh, don't want to overwhelm <laughs> the, the, the thrust of this podcast. But thanks for thanks for all that insight here. It's undeniable to me that we've seen an evolution in the way starting pitchers, even the best of them, are handled in the postseason with concerns about pitch counts and times through the order, setting up optimal lanes for each reliever. Meanwhile, both batters and pitchers, especially the relievers, have more information at their fingertips than ever to find the patterns and make adjustments, and the postseason gets longer and longer. Do you think we need to adjust our expectations for what a, even a $30 million or $40 million pitcher is capable of, particularly after the grind of 162 games and then these high-intensity playoffs? It's an excellent point. I know there were games that I pitched in postseason. I remember particularly matching up with John Smoltz in the 1992 World Series, and I actually went two for two batting off of John Smoltz in that <laughs> game, and both of us were completely worn out by the end. I think our stuff was clearly diminished. I know mine was. And we were definitely on to plan B and plan C in terms of throwing more off-speed pitches, trying to find a way to navigate through arm fatigue at the end of the year. And this was a day and age when they allowed us to throw 130 pitches a game. So you could imagine, you know, that we definitely were fatigued by the time we, we all got to the World Series. So, uh, yes, we should adjust our sights a little bit. I think uh, as much as a lot of the old-school baseball fans make fun of load management, it does matter. Uh, recovery time between starts, between outings definitely matter. We're starting to learn more and more about that through medical data. So, yes, it matters. Yes, we need to adjust our sights and extra rest here and there matters. So it absolutely uh, cries out to to adjust your sights on you know these big, high-paid number one starters. And if they tend to fail in a big game towards the end of the year, it's explainable. Yeah, you need to look right. a little closer and peel back the layers and see what's really going on. 
Yeah, it, you know, it occurs to me. I mean, you know, you were pushed so hard in the postseason. I know you're like the competitive aspect of it and the, the, the you know, the accountability of your teammates and all that stuff plays into it. And, you know, at the same time, I'm sure that those those outings took years off your career. You had a fantastic career. I've argued that, you know, it look, deserves another look from the Hall of Fame committees, but you didn't even get to 3,000 innings. And, you know, I think if you didn't have as many 130, 140-pitch games, you know, you might have gotten there and you might have gotten to 3,000 strikeouts. And John Smoltz, first pitcher with Tommy John surgery in the Hall of Fame. It took that long. It took It's it's taken that long. There's still only one there. Justin Verlander will probably be the second. So it strikes me that, yeah, this those games had a price, and especially at a time even with the transition to the five-man rotation where you guys are throwing, you know, fewer starts, that the survival rates of, of you know, of guys who, even the best pitchers who lasted that long, not everybody could be a Clemens or a Randy Johnson or, or whatever, the, the Glavin, Maddox, the guys who stick around to win 300. It's striking. It's very true. It's a great point. And there were so many games I pitched where there were kind of meaningless, empty innings at the end of an outing, say, Seven innings, you've got seven innings in the book, you're leading 12 to one. There's no reason to pitch those final two innings, or right. the, you know, and you end up going ahead and doing it because that's what was expected. And, you know, you're expected to finish what you started, go ahead, give the bullpen a break that day, close it out, and you end up throwing 135 or 140 pitches. You know, I threw 166 pitches at Shea Stadium one night <laughs> in a one to nothing <laughs> shutout you know, against the Giants back in 1992. So, you know, that was a one-to-nothing game. So, you know, and John Franco, our closer, was hurt and on the DL at the time. So, you know, maybe, you know, you, you look back, but I'm wondering, you know, there, how many games like that were there? You know, and, and what, not even one-to-nothing games, maybe maybe seven-to-two, seven-to-one games, and you just end up getting empty innings and empty pitches, pitches at the end of your game. That, With the benefit of hindsight, looking back, hey, we could have we managed that a little better. Right. Yeah, and just one more point I wanted to make here that, you know, we build up, you know, I think the media and his fans, we build up these, you know, the, the best pitchers, you know, to be, you know, viewed as infallible, bulletproof aces. And but as, as I like to say, you go to the, the barber often, often enough, sooner or later you get a haircut. You know, the Scherzer getting hit, Verlander getting hit, Cole having, you know, the occasional bad outing in the postseason. Kershaw was a guy, Clayton Kershaw was a guy who finally had to win a ring to validate all those years of postseason frustration. And he had three Cy Youngs. Not everybody can be Bob Gibson in those 1960 World Series turning three dominant complete game starts in. And yet it seems like part of the general public is still clinging to that or clinging to the Jack Morris 10 shutout innings and, you know, in the 91 game seven as as like the template. And, and we're just so far from that now. Yes, we are. And we we know more now. You know, once again, it comes back to opportunities. The more opportunities you get, the more the trueness of your ability is going to come through as opposed to a small sample size and a bad night or a random variance night or the bounce of the ball or the Babbitt gods are against you one particular game or, you know, just whatever happens, happens. And then you get judged on that forever. So it's extremely unfair. You know, it just is. Now, is there something to be said for uh, being a gamer? Is there some inherent you know, trait emotionally, an emotional IQ trait that Bob Gibson had? Maybe. Maybe there is. I don't <laughs> discount that. Michael Jordan might have had that where these certain players just 
seem to rise to the occasion or really thrive when they're at, when you're under pressure. Of course, that's a possibility. Of course, they're, they're, that's the human element of it. That's the the emotional IQ, as I said. Some right. some players are a little bit frightened in those situations, or a little bit unsure. What if what if I don't pitch well? And other players are sort of give me the ball. This this is what I live for. So yeah, there is that dynamic going on there, but. Over the long haul, good pitching shines through just like good hitting does. And the larger sample size you get, as you know, Jay, then the better read you get. So uh, it can be a little deceiving and a little unfair to judge people, you know, on one or two bad outings in a big spot. Yeah. Okay. So uh, just to wrap up here, where do you see the Yankees Guardian series going from here? I really believe that the uh, Yankees need to protect home field advantage. They need to win game two. They really needed to win game one and game two. The firewall is game five. If something goes awry in Cleveland and you, you get banged around and end up losing two games, you still can come back home for game five. Uh, I think the Yankees are in great shape with their pitching. Nestor Cortez matches up well with Cleveland. So does uh, Severino, who's thrown extremely well since he's come back off the IL. So the Yankees pitching is much better shape than you think it is. Bieber, Shane Bieber is a great breaking ball artist. He can give the Yankee right-handed hitters a lot of trouble. I see uh, close games. I see a pitching duel again. Uh, and then uh, Tristan McKenzie, also I'm very impressed with. He, he shut down the Yankees earlier this year. So I expect well-pitched games, close games, but I think the Yankees have the advantage because I think they can match up with Cleveland's pitching because Severino's back and Nestor Cortez has had a great year and finished on a great note. All right. Yeah, I thought of I thought of you uh, and your seven no-hit innings off of the uh, DL in, in 1996 when I saw Severino's uh, final turn there and his uh, getting pulled into no-hitter, the parallels uh, – uh, there was certainly something to that as looking forward to the playoffs and everything like that. And for me, that was, that was something that I think forever put me in your corner, the way you, the way you seem to understand the bigger picture in that moment. So David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this stuff. Some thoughts that I had that, that really kind of gelled here and perfect person to talk about it with. So really appreciate you coming on the show. Hope we catch up again down the road. Anytime, Jay. Always good to talk to you. All right. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. Welcome back. This is David Lorla once again. My guest on this segment is Julian McWilliams. Julian covers the Red Sox for the Boston Globe. Before that, he covered the Oakland A's for the Athletic. Julian, thanks for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Hey, thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it. Julian, we're going to talk Red Sox. We're going to talk a little bit of Oakland A's, I think. We'll definitely talk some postseason. But I think we should actually begin by addressing the fact that you have a baseball reference page. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you played some college ball and uh, some indie ball, um, I think, with the Las Vegas train robbers. That's, yes. that's a good name. Right. Oh, man. I have a funny story about that one. I thought I was going to uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. And then uh, for about two days, and then I saw the, the small NM on the contract. I'm like, oh, no, there's a Las Vegas, New Mexico. That can't be good. So, yeah, I spent the summer out there in uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico. I think uh, the closest one next to us was might have been Albuquerque. And I don't even think it was that close. We went through, literally, they had no exit. So if you get on a highway, you're there for about 100 miles. So uh, it was a different experience. It was a great experience, but I'm ultimately uh, – my stats weren't good enough, as you can see, to 
having to land anywhere else. <laughs> no, I did not actually know about the New Mexico thing. I thought that you were in the, the big glitzy city. No, no, it was there's a Las Vegas, New Mexico, and we had host families and uh, the whole nine. So it was it was definitely a grind. We stayed in a, actually before we had the host families, we stayed at like a motel six. It was like four of us to a room. So it was a different, different experience. I guess it, I guess it helped give me uh, some resolve though. <laughs> And some perspective, for sure. And you, you did grow up, though, in, in a large city. Um, I'm pretty sure that you are from Harlem. Is that correct? Yep. And one more thing. Yerman Mercedes was in that same league that same year. So, that, I mean, that kind of tells you it's crazy that he got out of there because most people don't. But, yeah, I grew up, I grew up in, the, um, in, the, in Harlem, born and raised. You know, always grew up playing baseball there. My dad played at the University of Maryland. He's from, originally from Baltimore, Maryland. So we have some, so we have some baseball background in our family, and um, you know, it's it's just always been, you know, I guess a, an escape or my go-to uh, for anything. So when it was time to transition to something else, I wanted to stay close to the game, and you know, I sort of chose this route, which I think uh, so far has has worked out for me. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, excited about what I what I do and in, in, in my community that helped shape me to get me here. And with New York in mind, Julian, I should get your thoughts on the Mets and Yankees seasons, primarily what has happened and is happening this October. It's impressive, for one, that, that the Yankees have, you know, haven't had a losing season, I believe, since 1992 or before 1992. I think that's sort of impressive. I read that in the Shaughnessy column and I was like, had to double text, said, wait, is that really true? So for that, I think it's, it's impressive. However, we always took the line of like, you know, with the Red Sox, we talk about the five last place finishes in 11 seasons, but, you know, they have, you know, four titles underneath their belt. So it's like, what's the, the best way for somebody to go about winning? And I'm not sure if I have an answer for that because, sure, you want consistency. And I think that's probably the consistency that the Red Sox are trying to get to. But for the Yankees, for them not to have a World Series title since 2009, I mean, I think for that market, at least me, myself, who grew up a Yankee fan, you know, that would be something that was, uh, you know, sort of unheard of when, when I was growing up. And granted, that was a different time. That was a different era. And I think if you have to look at it from that was something that we would probably never see again in baseball, probably. From the Mets perspective, I think, you know, people talk about, yeah, you know, they, they lost in a wild card and everything like that. But I think for them to gain some sort of stability was important for this year, right? I think it was important that they made the playoffs. Uh, we can talk about it being a three-game playoff and them winning 101 games and having to play in a three-game playoff. That's a totally different topic, but... You know, people talk about like, oh, you know, everybody always talked about a Mets downfall and everything. And it has to, has a lot to do with the Mets outside of the baseball field. Well, they didn't really have that, you know, this season. They didn't really have the Yoannis Cespedes, you know, breaking his foot with his horses or whatever. They 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 had some sort of sort of sort of like stability. And you can see that's a franchise when when they're going well that anybody will want to play for because. I mean, you go to City Field, it, it, it's rocking like Yankee Stadium does in, in the playoffs or how Fenway does, you know, in regular season of playoffs. It, those fans just bring a different sort of passion, I think, that you don't necessarily even see from Yankee fans. So I think for them to see to see that they could have a, something sustainable and something, you know, that's a little not on the crazy end of the spectrum of things, I think that that, that bodes well for this organ, that organization and free agency. And Buck Showalter and Joe Musgrove were obviously very much in the news this week. Gary Cohen had some things to say after that game that I guess a lot of Mets fans didn't really appreciate. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's interesting. When he went and uh, sort of looking at Musgrove's ear, 
Look, I, I mean, from a journalism perspective, I appreciate it because you rarely hear that from your from the team that carries your games, right? You rarely hear that from a Yes Network or, or somewhere like that. I mean, that takes that takes a lot of guts for you to be able to say that. And I think that's what makes a Mets broadcast one of the best in baseball. I mean, I even think when we think about Dennis Eckersley, you know, just his, his ability to just to say stuff that he that he felt. And I think at the end of the day, that's what people want to hear. Uh, you know, I think that's why people like that that Mets franchise so much. What I think about it, I, you know, I think you got to figure out some way to try to get an edge or, or, or get ahead. And I, and, and I mean, his ears were looking glossy, you know, and the fact of the matter is if, if there was something on his ears and you didn't check it, you know, and, and it ended up being something and they'd be like, well, you know, Buck Showalter should have checked it. So I think you kind of look at that and just say, you got to just charge it up to say it didn't work out. But I appreciate Gary Cohen's comments because, again, that's something that you don't really, really hear from from your uh, from your team broadcast. Shiny ears, as opposed to uh, Michael Pineda pine tar on the neck. Oh different. yeah, exactly. <laughs> little exactly. difference that there. Was, that was a little bit more bold. <laughs> that that was bold. Yes, that was very bold. Yeah, Julian, let's jump to the Red Sox. This is a team that was in the ALCS last season. You know, this year, obviously, they finished in last place. How close or how far away is this team to actually being a postseason team again? You know, if I didn't see the emergence of the AL East, I would say that they're, you know, they were a few guys short, right? But the, the talent around them, I think, to some degree, shocked the organization in terms of how the Orioles are now in the mix. You know, uh, you have... Obviously, you have the the Blue Jays that are that are in the mix and sort of fell below expectations for a lot of people this year. So they're not necessarily far off, but I think they're farther than you know they're further than where they would be in a normal year where they finished six games under five hundred and they're going home early. You know, I I don't think this is one of those one of those last place finishes that you can just sort of just look at and be like, hmm, like okay, well. It was just a bad season. We'll figure it out next year because, you know, you have you have a lot of pending free agents, you know, at the end of the day. You, and, and frankly, you don't have the talent that you that you used to have. Chris Sale, I'm sorry, he hasn't pitched in three years. He's not the Chris Sale of old. You don't have a, a David Price who's in his prime coming back into the pitching staff. So you don't have a, a Rick Porcello even who, despite some of his ups and downs, can at least eat innings for you. I know you could talk about Nick Pavetta, but I think Porcello was, was, a, was a better pitcher than Nick Pavetta was as a starter. So... They have a lot of question marks. Uh, they have a lot of money coming off the books. You know, I think I know Xander Bogarts is a, is a big name, but uh, Rafael Devers is obviously a big name going into next year. But they they don't have a DH in, right now, which is, makes the Kyle Schwarber them not signing Kyle Schwarber a lot more interesting. So I would say they're a bit they're they're a bit further off than they were in years past when they finished last. I I, I think that's the least we can we can say because uh, you just haven't seen anything from this team. And Xander Bogarts can, of course, opt out. The Red Sox certainly want to re-sign him. Rafael Devers, signing him to an extension is an important goal, or at least should be for Heim Bloom. He has one year left on his contract, I believe. If you are Heim Bloom and can only sign one, if ownership says, hey, we can only afford to sign one of these guys, which one do you spend the money on? Oof, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I think, oh, I just... I think Xander just means more to the organization, you know, from a from an organizational perspective. I think you've seen the consistency with him. I think that's I think that's somebody that that I would want to sign over over. Excuse me, those are my dogs over a Rafael Devers because of just his his consistency within the organization. Now for. 
Heim Bloom's sake, I hope that's not something that he has to sort of navigate because that would certainly be a tough, you know, be able, giving up on Raphael, Raphael Devers. I think that's that's obviously something that's that's a little bit tough. But I think Devers, for me, is going to have to prove that he can have some sort of reach his mark of like a, being a star and a consistent player. I think he has these times where he looks like, if you look at even this season, right? I mean, sure, a really good season, but he struggled for the last month and a half. And I think a lot of times, even despite the injuries this year, he sort of goes in these these, these streaks. And I think, you know, from your, uh, your star player, you know, you want to see a little bit more consistency. So I think me and you talked about it, Dave. I, you said, you know, I, I don't, I, the, the Matt Olson deal, I, they talked about that. I don't know necessarily if that's something that's was a little bit too far off, right? I think what Devers has proved, yes, he's certainly better than Matt Olson, but by how much? I look at somebody like Austin Riley deal. I think that's the sort of deal that Devers should get, you know, the 210 deal, because you can make the argument that Austin Riley is better than Devers. You can just say that, right? I mean, it's just, you can really make that argument. Same age, you know, I think a little bit better of a defender, probably going to have to move to first base at some point. You know, he had to obviously had the power numbers this year. So you look at somebody like Devers and it's like, sure, he's a star player, but I think he's going to have to grow up a little bit and, and, and start to be that player that, that we see the consistency from that makes him such a dazzling talent when he's, when it, when he's hitting on all cylinders. I was planning, Julian, to ask you about the Matt Olson. Listeners who aren't in the Boston area may not know that the Red Sox reportedly used Olson as a comp when negotiating an extension with Devers prior to this season. You know, fans here seem to be aghast with that idea. You know, should they have been, though? I mean, Matt Olson, you know, you covered him in Oakland. He is uh, one heck of a baseball player. Oh, he's he's awesome. I mean, yeah, like Devers is a better hitter. But I mean, defensively, I think Olsen, you know, I know the metrics don't support him necessarily this year. But if you watch him defensively, you know, you're looking at a guy that that is, uh, I think, the best defensive first baseman in, in the big leagues. The power numbers are always there. He had a really he had a he had a got off to a slow start and, you know, sort of was streaky toward the end. But I think that's that's just who Matt is in terms of the streakiness as a hitter. That's we've obviously seen that. But the overall package of the player, I mean, you, he got lost in Oakland. You know, that same thing with Matt Chapman, he got lost in Oakland. Those are two premier talents. And I think, like you said, if you look at the deal, I don't think it was necessarily that far off. Was it off? Yes, I think it was off. I think Devers is, if we took if we take Devers and we take Olsen, I'd take, I'd take Devers over, over Olsen. But it wasn't, it wasn't that crazy. I put him in the Austin Riley range. I, don't, I do not put Devers. Let me say this. I do not put Devers in the $300 million range. I just don't. I just, I just don't think he's proven to be that type of player. It's too lopsided. He's a great hitter, but people talk about improved defense. But, yeah, but how much? He'll never be Adrian Beltre over there, so he's probably going to have to move over to first. I think the weight probably is it's at some point might be an issue. So I think I, I, don't, I, I do not put him in a $300 million range. But for the Red Sox, the only way you'll probably get to know that, he's, that, that for, for Devers to understand it, that he's not a $300 million player is if you let him go to market. That's another risk. So it's like, okay, do I overpay for this guy to keep him, or do I let him go to the market to see his really his true value? So I, I think I think that that's that's sort of something that the that the Red Sox and Heim Bloom will have to navigate. Which I'm happy, like I don't I'm not a GM and I don't have to do that because that's a really something that's really tough. With first base in mind and comps in mind, do you see Tristan Casas as a younger version of Matt Olson? Defensively, you know, Tristan really impressed me. Uh, I, I thought that he was really, really impressive. I think from 
the plate discipline perspective, yes, he has that. But Matt always had the power. Tristan hasn't sort of, I think some things sometimes people say he hasn't tapped into his power yet. Matt also, Matt always had the power. I think if you look back at his stats when he came up, his first season in, is, is in 2017, or he came up in August 2017, I think he made his debut. He hit some crazy amount of homers in, in the last two months. Uh, I don't want to, I could probably look it up. but So I don't necessarily think Tristan has that. But from everything else, he, he he definitely seems to seems to be able to have that have that type be that type of player. And you covered the A's as I just mentioned in uh, twenty eighteen into twenty nineteen. Those were teams that won ninety seven games. When you look at where that franchise is now, do you just shake your head or, you know, like what can you really do? You know, that fan base right now is suffering. It is. It's a shame because if you look at Oakland and what they've been able to do with so little for so long, I think that that speaks to the formula that they have there that that works and that a lot of teams, we know, as of, you know, Moneyball and everything that they've, they've modeled. So you look at the Oakland fan base as well. It's like it's a very, very passionate and loyal fan base. It kind of reminds me of like people from Philly. I've always said that they have that little edge to them. They've had that little underdog role and they've lost the Golden State Warriors. They lost the Raiders. They're probably going to lose the A's at some point. You just say, man, that's a, that's a town that sort of runs on its sports. You know, they did a lot more winning back in the day than, than they did losing. And it was a historical franchise with obviously who I think Ricky Henderson, the top five player of all time and I think is a bit underrated. So yeah, you look at it and you're just you you just feel ashamed for that franchise because I know a lot of their fans and I know they're aching just to have some sort of stadium and hopefully they don't they don't move. But I mean it just it just looks very, very bleak. The A's let Bob Melvin walk away to San Diego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think that Bob Melvin could realistically be called the best manager in baseball? I think so. I think so. I think his communication. Look, I don't think that San Diego team makes the playoffs if they don't if they don't have Bob Melvin. And I think that the people that cover the team would would agree with that. I mean, the the all they had went through this year, you know, it was a lot. And then them letting the let, letting him walk, I think, had to do more with the respect of Bob than they did of sort of saying, "Hey, you know, get out of here." It was kind of like, "Look, we're in a situation." I think David Ford spoke about it to reporters saying, "We're in a situation saying." you know, where we're just not going to be winning in the, in the next couple of years. And you're too good of a manager to be here with us as we try to figure this out with this owner who owns Gap, by the way, but doesn't give us any money to spend and is sort of like, let, you know, letting everything just fall apart. So we're going to give you the grace of, of, of walking away and going to somewhere where you can possibly win because, you know, Bob's not a, he's not a young guy necessarily in this managerial game. I think he's one of the older managers now. So he gave his nine, ten years there. I mean, that's 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 a long time that he gave to that franchise, and they're saying, "Hey, you need to go somewhere where you can win." Um, obviously, where they then they did right by a lot of their players too. Sent Canna to uh, New York, to Chapman to you know Toronto, um, you know Olson to the to Atlanta to his hometown. So I think they do right by their guys, and I think that was just another another example of that. And absolutely, I think you know he's the. He's one of the he's one of the better managers in, in in all of baseball, and I think it has a lot to do with the way he can just relate to players. Obviously, he's a shrewd baseball guy, but I think his ability to be able to ease a clubhouse is 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 one of is a, is a gift that you don't see a lot of times in a lot of managers these days. Let's jump subjects, Julianne, one or two more times before I let you go. 
worth speaking on Wednesday. The home run that your Dan Alvarez hit was just an incredible <laughs> moment. You know, we look back, we're in the press box last October at Fenway Park, and I don't recall what the numbers were in the that two or three game stretch. It was mm-hmm. probably something like 10 for 12 with like six extra base hits. So, I mean, he's a fantastic hitter, but last night's moment was like, wow. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. I walked out the house, I think after Altuve struck out, I was like, okay, this is this is over. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go walk the dogs. <laughs> and so I walked out, and then my friend texts me and just says, "Wow, you're doing, you're Don Alvarez." And I was like, "What happened?" And I and I go and look on my phone, and I just see this mammoth home run. I, he's a special hitter, and I don't think he gets a lot of credit. You know, obviously we know the the talent he is, but you do get kind of sort sort of lost, even though it's Houston. You kind of do get a little 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 bit lost that uh, you know out there a little bit. So from the minute he hit the scene. I remember in 2019 when I was still covering the A's, he hit a mammoth home run against them. I think it was like upper deck in Houston. And I was just like, whoa, like who is this guy? So, I mean, you're talking about a person that is a complete hitter, can hit to all fields and does it with such authority and consistency that he might be the most pure hitter in all of baseball in terms of just complete hitter of, of, of being able to bat the ball skills, power, hitting to all fields. I mean, you're talking about a guy that is an elite, elite hitter at this point. And one last thing, Julian, uh, circling back indirectly to the Red Sox, you know, you, of course, covering an AL East team, the Orioles were probably the biggest pleasant surprise in baseball this year. Do you see them as going on to surpass the quote-unquote beasts of the AL East and becoming the division's best team in the next few years? The division's best team? I'm not sure, but I do think they've built something that's a sustainable winner, and I think it starts with their catcher. I think that this division is tough. Uh, I think that 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 it'll continue to be tough. I think that you know teams will have noticed, have taken note of the Orioles, and say, you know, hey, we need to we need to be a little bit more shrewd and a little bit more sort of tactful with with the way we're approaching free agency trades everything because i mean i think they're a real team I, but i do see them being at the top I, I, you know I, I can see them winning the division at some point being like hey a tampa bay where they're just like yeah we won the division and, and we're really good and we're here to stay and i think that consistency starts with their with their catcher i think it started with their arms as well they had a lot of bullpen arms that came up that are that are really good and then you look at the middle of the field. I mean, that, that Gunner kid, I mean, he's, he's a stud. Uh, and I think that it's hard. It's hard. It's really, really hard to pick pick right in the draft. I think that's something that the Red Sox have, have come to find out come to find out in some years and, and obviously the Yankees and, and other teams. But when you do pick right, like, and you do have a cornerstone franchise catcher that you can, that, you know, you can make a really big argument for a rookie of the year, by the way. Uh, and then you have, you add in all the pieces around that. I think that you're 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 on the path to, to building sustainable winner, and I think that they have that coming. No, I agree with you completely, Julian. I think the Red Sox have their work cut out for them to win a division in, in the next few years. You know, on that note, you know, I think we're over time, so I will thank you once again for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Hey, thanks, David. I appreciate it. And thanks everybody for listening to Fangrass Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Eve, David, and Julian for all joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It would help us out.
After you have perused the Fangraph shop, make sure you also check out the Fangraphs app. Free on the Apple Store and Google Play, it's a great way to use Fangraphs on the go, whether you're at the ballpark or the bar or just on the couch. And don't forget the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to keep up on everything we have going on, free to your inbox. That will do it for us this week. We hope your playoff dreams are coming true so far. Good luck, and we'll talk to you next time.